Materials are all around us. Some are big, some are small, some are really small, and some are really, really, really small. These nanomaterials do a whole bunch of different functions, and chemists can create materials with specific functions that do all different kinds of things. Personally, and technically, I'm a material. My name is Louis Colorotello. I'm a student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science. And in the meantime, when I'm not doing what I should be doing, I like to talk with other graduate students about what they're doing and or maybe what they should be doing. So today we are entering a material world and talking to a material girl. Sarah Martell works with materials on the nano scale. She is all about customizing and designing materials on an incredibly small scale so that they can perform different kinds of functions that we use in our daily lives. Particularly, Sarah is goal-driven, so she knows that she wants a specific property in a material and then goes out to achieve it. But let her say something about that. It's sort of like a recipe, like a good photo this should be like this, this, and this. If you're looking for a great recipe about photocatalysis, then you are listening to the right episode. But while you're listening, keep in mind a few things. We are really just grad students, and we don't know everything. But that's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm excited for our chat. Oh, I am excited, too. I am doing good over here. Could you do us a favor before we get into the meat of it? Could you tell us your educational history? Yes, for sure. So I started in my Bachelor of Science uh, at Mount Allison University, which is in a small town called Sackville in New Brunswick. Um, and I got a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. Um, and I got to do some research there, which is pretty fun. And I kind of got the research bug and I enjoyed what I was doing. So from there, I came to Dalhousie University where I started my master's in the Dassault lab, still in chemistry. Um, And again, I liked it so much that I sort of transferred from my master's directly into my PhD. I'm there now just still working, still enjoying it. All right. So you're you're over there. You got some good views. We're on the Atlantic coast. We're having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, grad school is the most wonderful experience you've ever had in your entire life, and you wouldn't change a single thing, right? <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. Great, great, great. So tell me, because I have no idea, what in the world do you even study? So I'm in the field of material science. So it's a sort of mix of chemistry, engineering, and physics. Uh, which ends up being pretty fun and you get to experience a lot of different fields. So what I focus on is the synthesis of this material called mesoporous silicon nanoparticles and how when I tune and change different uh, parameters within the synthesis, um, kind of investigating how that affects the final material. This type of material is used in many different applications. And since With material science, making fine adjustments or changing a few parameters in your reaction, um, it can change the final material to like quite a large degree and making it useful for a wide variety of applications. So it's just investigating that. So you are a material scientist. I love materials. Yeah, materials are so important in everyday life. That's what I realized kind of going into material science. uh, Because in my bachelor's, I sort of focused on small uh, molecule inorganic synthesis and material caught my eye and I knew I kind of wanted to go in that direction because they are such an essential part of our everyday life and then so many different products that you use and there's a lot of potential uh, for future applications I guess in the materials field. 
Yeah, and it seems just such a somewhat abstract but incredibly tangible concept. Materials, right? Okay, materials. Right now, I'm physically touching like probably 60 different types of materials. The fabric on my chair, the shirt that I'm wearing, uh, the glasses on my face, the, the, the microphone has materials that are woven into it to catch the sound, my keyboard, the floor... Everything I'm touching right now is a material in some sort of way or another. But we're still making materials. Like, we, we, we haven't figured them all out yet. Oh, definitely. And there's a big, I guess, division in this case between bulk materials and scaling down to, like, the nano side. And so what you're talking about is a lot of bulk materials, which, of course, are super important. But and I guess have a lot of functions as well. But when you scale down, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the nanoscale. You have some really interesting parameters that pop up and a lot of potential uses when you get down to that small of a material. And sort of that's where I am. Playing around with small materials so that we can like use those benefits that we get from going down to that nano scale. Okay, so we're we got bulk materials, we got materials on a small scale. You use the word nano a lot. Yeah. And nano, that's that's small. Nano is pretty small. Nano is pretty small. So that's sort of like a magic area between sort of atomic, like you typically hear a chemist speak about, uh, and bulk, which is what you were describing with your shirt and stuff like that. So nano is actually, or to try and put it into a bit of perspective, human hair is actually, I think the width is about 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers. <laughs> That's a lot of nanometers. Yeah, it's very, very small. So in, in one meter, we have one billion nanometers. Exactly. I'm pretty much no one who's listening to this public radio station has a billion dollars. Well, maybe if you do, I could actually use some fun. Okay, not important. Um, So, but a billion is a really hard number for people to grasp because it's such a large, large, large number. So we don't see the difference between like, you know, uh, uh, a large, large, large numbers like 500 million and 1 billion, although that they're double. So when we go all the way down into the very small end of things, we're looking at materials that are on the nano scale, which means that there are Potentially, if if a material is one nanometer in width, there are one billion of them if stacked side by side in one meter. Exactly. We're going down. We're going. We're going down on the scale of things here. And you are telling me that through some magical chemistry that you're doing, you can change things by tailoring stuff on the nano scale. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And. Also, for one thing, when you get that small, you have really high reactivity because when you think about it, if you think of like a little sphere that's like that small, most of it's going to be surface area. And so we call that surface area to volume ratio is pretty high when you get down to the nanoscale. Um, And so with that, you get a lot of reactivity. The surfaces are reactive. And you can also get pretty cool like optical properties when you go down to the nanoscale. Like I know, um, and this isn't really like new technology, Back in, I say like ancient times, because I don't exactly know what time period to call it, but uh, with stained glass windows, the colors from that are actually, I think the reds and the blues and maybe the greens are due to nanoscale gold, silver, and I think copper. And so this, this 
materials used for different applications is ancient technology. And so we're just kind of understanding it a bit more now and understanding how to harness their potential into various applications. And that's kind of a, a fascinating concept, right? Because we haven't just discovered nanomaterials. You know, it wasn't like, okay, on 2003, we discovered, you know, nanomaterials. They have been around forever, but now with what we have, the tools that we have, and the super smart people like you that we have, we have the ability to manipulate and make these materials even better by changing itty-bitty things on this nanoscale. Exactly. That's exactly it. For example, uh, in my project, so I, I mentioned I work with something called mesoporous silicon nanoparticles. The mesoporous part of that just means that it's a certain type of pore. So it's porous, like, sort of like a sponge. And because of that, it has a really high surface area. So I'm able to use those if I synthesize the material a certain way, I'm able to use those particles for something called photocatalysis. So I can reuse those to produce hydrogen just based on reacting with water and light. And so I'm able to do that because it's sort of like a recipe, like a good photocatalysis should be like this, this, and this. And I can sort of tailor that synthesis to make that particle. On the other hand, Silicon is also investigated for battery materials, but the requirements for silicon in the battery sense is completely different than a photocatalysis. So if I sort of, again, like a recipe, change up the synthesis, I can make silicon that would perform better for a battery. So the whole goal is to sort of understand how changing small things in the reaction can sort of make a material that's good for this thing or this thing over here. And so the control and tunability that you have with material synthesis um, is pretty incredible. And I think we just need to understand it a bit better to sort of gain more control. So like in an analogy that I will almost always go to whenever I'm talking to someone who does synthesis is like working in a kitchen. Right. It's that classic, you know, you put stuff in a pot, you stir it together and then, you know, something happens and it's delicious. But all of these small changes that you can make along the way are going to affect the final product. Like if you used 1% milk or if you used heavy cream, you're going to end up with a different product. Like your cake might still be a cake, but it's going to be a slightly different cake. So now, ready for this. Now, this is where I'm going to extend my analogy. You talk about things that make a good mesoporous material for photocatalysis, which I think we'll dig into a little bit later. Um, but you also talk about making good silicon uh, uh, materials. Uh, would you say that this is like fusion cooking? Sort of like, you know, uh, a French-Indian fusion. That's funny. Let me think about that. Honestly, yeah, I don't think so. Like, because how you approach the, the synthesis method is sort of like inspired by some, some, I guess, final result that you want. Yeah, so if you would like some flare that's more tailored to batteries or like something like that, you know, you can, you can kind of put that into how you produce this material. And something interesting about uh, material synthesis, which is um, pretty different than just like your typical... Um, not typical, but like, as you think, if you think chemistry, you're thinking like uh, molecular and stuff like that. For molecular synthesis, different routes or say different approaches to something, you're still going to get that final product. It could be a different purity or something, but 
if you take different routes, you're still going to end in the same place. But for material synthesis, the way that you make your product uh, really affects um, how it how it is in the end, the properties of it in the end. And so, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Fusion restaurant. So there's lots of stuff to consider. So yeah, right. You're trying to create something that is like even better than either option. You're trying to highlight the best of the best to make a material that does more than one thing. Or am I wrong? But not necessarily because if I make a material, it's going to be good. Uh, Let's say I want to make a material that's good for photocatalysis. It will be just good for photocatalysis. But what I want to do is sort of look at that synthesis method and sort of have like a little flow chart or map being like, oh, would you like something that has high surface area or low surface area or high crystallinity, low crystallinity? And you can kind of follow that to make your choices and how you design your synthesis. So it's not that the final material will be good in multiple things. You have sort of a blueprint to to design it how you would like. So then would you say that you make changes and see what happens, or do you try to see what you want and then make changes to get you where you want to go? It's a bit of both, honestly, sort of depending on, I guess, where I am in the project. So yeah, I think it is a bit of both. Starting, starting off, it was a lot like, okay, we want to make this change. Let's kind of investigate. Let's make some changes in the synthetic sort of route or procedure uh, to see if we can get that. And then making a lot of changes, you can sort of like analyze your results and be like, oh, okay, that was unexpected. And I think it kind of go hand in hand, honestly, having something in mind that you'd like to see. And then at the same time, as you're changing all these parameters, you're, you're learning a lot about the reaction. And that's another thing about the type of reactions I do. They are solid state reactions. And so we basically, it's kind of called the shake and bake method in a crude way. You just kind of like throw powders together and toss it into a furnace and heat it up. And you look at it the next day and you're like, oh, I made the material or, oh, it didn't make it. But it's really hard to see what's going on during the reaction. You can't really like peek into the Mm -hmm. furnace. And so that's a big mystery, trying to figure out what's going on. And a lot of these reactions, like people don't really know the mechanism. And so that is... Sort of, um, after changing parameters, you also get a little bit of insight as to what's going on. You're you're just throwing stuff together. You are just mixing random things off of the shelf. You're throwing them into an oven, and you're just going home for the day. <laughs> Maybe that's a crude way to put it, but like, how much do you have to know before you begin throwing stuff together? There's a lot to know. There is a lot to know. And I think at some point, you just have to try some reactions. Because looking into, I guess, every every week, I think I learned something new about my reaction that I didn't realize was like a big deal. Everything like in terms of like the ratios that you use, the temperature that you want to heat to, how fast you heat to that temperature, how long you stay at that temperature, are you going to go to a lower temperature? How clean is your reaction vessel? What's the purity of your starting material? How do you work up the material? There's so many factors can come into play. You you should know, I guess, like I do take educate, make educated guesses when I'm starting sort of a new reaction and I kind of like have an idea of what I want to see and like why I'm using or why I'm choosing these parameters. Uh, but at some point you just have to try a bunch and see what, see what happens. Yeah, you never fully know any, everything. And isn't that kind of more fun 
Exactly. Yeah, it is more fun. And I've been studying this reaction for four years now. And I every, like I said, every week I learn something new. So we have talked a lot of abstract about what you do as far as material science, how we make changes on the small scale of things, and how ultimately you're just, uh, you know, reaching off the shelves, grabbing stuff and putting it into an oven. <laughs> Uh, but let, let's get down into the nitty-gritty, or should I say, let's go on to the nanoscale of your project. What 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 is this mesoporous photocatel silicone sponge thing you're making, and why? Yeah, why? That's a good question. Yeah, silicon is a great element to work with. I mean, it's one of the most abundant in the world, like sand, that's all silicon dioxide. It's very, like, benign, uh, safe to work with, and pretty inexpensive. And so that's sort of the goal to start off with. Like, if I'm going to do something, uh, I want it to be, like, scalable. I want it to be, like, potentially useful in some industrial situation. So silicon is a great element to work with. And so why mesoporous? I guess depending on what the application is that you want to use it for. Mainly, the mesoporosity sort of helps increase that surface area. Like I said, um, when you have high surface area, like that high surface to volume ratio, um, you get sort of enhanced reactivity. And so that's important for a lot of different applications like photocatalysis, like I mentioned. I'm also, I'm sort of going on a lot of different routes with this, this material and some other materials that I work with. I sort of, I have a lot of fun sort of playing around with the synthesis and then investigating it for and sort of optimizing it for different applications. So recently, instead of actually photocatalysis, I've been using this material for just reacting with water itself. It reacts with water um, and produces hydrogen gas, which can be used as a, an energy source or chemical fuel. And so that high surface area enables pretty fast reactivity. And that's the, that's the major thing with the mesoporosity, I guess, for my, my case. But again, for, say, a battery-type situation, you wouldn't want as high of a surface area. And so that just comes back to tailoring the reaction again. All right. So you you are not, you know, in this dark laboratory in some basement saying, like, I need to create this one material for this one very specific job, and I'm not leaving, and I'm not going to look at the sun until I'm done. When you are exploring this kind of thing, you have kind of an open mind about what's going to be happening in the future, where you can go with it, and what it's going to be applied for. Definitely. And I think that's, I really am enjoying my project because of that. My mind sort of like jumps from one thing to another. So I really like the fact that I can do so many things and sort of tie it back in. Yeah, specifically with, I guess what I've been really interested in lately is that sort of reaction with water to produce hydrogen. It's pretty relevant in terms of, it's using hydrogen as an energy source uh, that isn't a fossil fuel. And so basically hydrogen can store a lot of energy. It's pretty energy dense. And so when you like combust it or use it in a fuel cell, you can get a lot of energy from that. So basically this project is sort of, or sort of this side of my project is looking at being able to produce hydrogen really quickly. So in sort of like on-demand situations like emergencies or in a portable device or something. Yeah. And so hopefully industrially relevant, we do have some pretty high rates because of that high surface area that we can achieve. Uh, so yeah, that's been pretty cool. 
So in general, if we're making a device that is used to make energy, we want it to be very efficient, right? We don't we don't want like a really big, ridiculously large material that makes small amount of energy. We want material that makes as much energy as possible. And you can make that possible by just changing some of the chemistry and the physics behind the material. Yep, exactly. I guess knowing what you want, I guess, knowing the fact that, yeah, I won't really have Tercerium. And another thing is that I want complete reactivity. So I want that nanoparticle mixture that I throw in there. I want that all to be silicon. No unreacted stuff in there because that'll, that'll change the efficiency. And so that's another thing I'm currently dealing with is sort of like I have the surface area down. It's just now making sure that what we have is silicon and, yeah, other ways to increase the efficiency, I guess and make it sort of cost effective. So there's another thing on top of that. You you have to really mitigate a lot of things in one material. And you you're Definitely. you're you're coming up with all these different ways to change this parameter a little bit and you change that thing a little bit, but then that's going to affect all of the different parameters in a different way. So would you say that you're trying to like optimize the material to, you know, give you the most benefits with the least drawbacks? Definitely. That's the perfect way to put it. And that's the word I'm sort of missing. But yeah, a lot of what I do is optimizing. I feel like every single step within my degree has been an optimizing thing. First of all, like I looked at optimizing my material to get high surface area by tuning different parameters and stuff. After that, it was many yeah many different optimizing steps in in every sort of direction that i go in different applications whether it's photocatalysis this reaction with water uh or something else is it all kind of comes down to optimization that's a huge thing in material science it's so so there, there we go i just gave a material science buzzword optimization Ooh, oh that's exactly we, yeah we love that word in material science don't we oh yeah yeah it's a lot of time but it's it's cool <laughs> We don't want to create inefficient materials. We don't got time for that. We're too busy to make inefficient materials. No way. So we take people like you who work in laboratories, who have a good idea of how this process works, and we say like, okay, if we want this parameter, what could we do to potentially achieve it? And that's ultimately your job. Yeah, I agree. Because it takes a lot of... Uh, I guess, knowledge about understanding how the system responds to different changes and stuff. And we're getting closer. The more and more time we spend on it, uh, we're getting closer and closer to sort of understanding the underlying sort of mechanisms that drive this reaction and how how come these changes sort of affect the reaction. I actually have a, a sort of funny story. We use magnesium in our reaction. And this is just magnesium that we, we buy uh, from a supplier. And so at one point, our, we ran out of this magnesium and our supplier, the supplier wasn't shipping it into Canada anymore. Because small magnesium is pretty reactive, so I think there's some safety issues. Um, regardless, we ended up getting the same, supposedly the same magnesium from a different supplier. And the reaction was totally, totally different. And we saw products that were totally different. And we were like, what's going on here? And we, we tried another magnesium that was a bit different size. Uh, but again, completely different reaction conditions. There are parameters, I guess, of the final uh, product. 
And so that's something I never really realized either. But like the same, it has the same name, same specifications, two different suppliers. The reaction was like very different. It's just little things like that that keep coming up and that sort of add to the understanding of what's going on. So it's definitely um, a work in progress. And again, this material has like huge, I think, potential. Um, but yeah, we definitely have to understand what's going on and fully understand like when we make these changes, what's really happening. In, in, and if I'm to go back to my, my analogy, like you ever see those movies that so romanticize like restaurant chefs, they go to the market early in the morning and they like sniff the tomato and they're like, yes, this is the tomato I will be using tonight. And I'm over here like, okay, which one's on sale? Let's go. Don't got time to sniff tomatoes today. But yeah, the little itty bitty things can dramatically change your material as the, the, I guess the smell of the tomato, I don't know. The smell of the tomato affects their final dish. Yeah. I love that analogy. That's perfect. And it's, yeah, it's because it's something that you don't think will have a huge effect because you think you've nailed it down, but nope, there's always something that throws you for a loop. So then I guess my, my final remark on all of this is that we see a lot of like, you know, those the 30 second videos or, you know, specifically those videos with captions, but like no words. And then they got elevator music in the background all about, ah, this new material does this or this new battery does this. You know, it's, it's a, so many of those videos are everywhere. You can't avoid them if you're on social media, but somebody needs to make them. And this is where all of that begins. Exactly. Yeah. There are like, I will say, I don't want to say like material science is like a brand new field and we're all sort of in this like black box trying to figure out what's going on. There are materials out there that do amazing things like in so many products that people use every single day. Um, but yeah, this one specifically that I'm working on, we're, we're in that black box still. And <laughs> when we get out, it's going to be pretty cool. But yeah, this is definitely where a lot of the work is put in. All right. Well, that that sums it up quite nicely. Do you do you have anything? Do you do you got anything you want to get off your chest before we go? Is there something that you want to complain about? Anything at all? Hmm. That's a good question. Complain about? I don't think I have anything to complain about. I mean, I just really I I like my research. It's like keeps me on my toes, and that's what I like about it. Um, and I got pretty specific into the material science uh, world. So I hope it gives some insight about sort of the work that's gone in and when you think about the materials in your daily life, I guess. The really, really, really small materials in our lives. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure on the macro scale, not on the micro scale or the meso scale, or really the nano scale for that matter. But the nano scale is like more encompassing there. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So from nano all the way to macro, it was a pleasure talking with you today. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. This is great. Now that our conversation with Sarah is over, I've done a little bit of reflecting, and since Sarah was technically talking about recipes, and this entire episode was a backstory to her talking about recipes, this episode was kind of like a long-winded intro to a blog about a recipe. 
And you can't really skip to the end just to see the recipe because we're not going to give you the recipe for the photocatalysis. Although maybe if you email her or tweet at her, she might give you a recipe. I don't know. That's for you to figure out. Either way, now that we are done with the episode, we have one last thing to do. On We Know Some Stuff, we have to every once in a while admit that we do not know everything. So we always include a fact check at the end of every episode. So Sarah and I both listened to this episode a number of times, and we could not find anything that needed a correction. However, if things do come out in the future that we realize we were incorrect, we are more than happy to make that correction. But until that day, thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.